Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Not Your Average Joe, the podcast that'll make anyone a little less average. I'm your host, Joe Franco, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I am going to be reviewing a book I just read called The Psychology of Money. This book has been trending on the internet for quite some time. It was written by Morgan Housel, and it is such a good read. I swallowed it in two days. It's one of those books that boils down the huge and complicated subject of money into very simple and easy to follow ways. And the fact that whether you care about it or not, money, just like health, are things that will impact your life. So this episode is going to be chocolate and takeaways. There's no guest. It's just me. And I'm excited because I've taken some notes. I've highlighted some sentences. And I got a lot to say about this. I love talking about money because in my opinion, it's much more than just the dollar amount. We're talking about life here. Kill the intro, sis. You know she's not your average Joe. Not your average Joe. So let's get this straight. We are going into some dark economic times, not to sound like a doomsday predictor, but inflation is higher than it's been in four decades. Not since the 1980s have we seen this level of inflation, which means that our dollars will amount to essentially less. It's more expensive than ever to buy basic things. I was looking up flights the other day and I'm like, since when is it $2,000 to go to Europe? And I know that I'm talking about this like excessive expense that I don't need to be spending, but gas is also rising. It's basically like the economic equivalent of a shitstorm. You have the war in Ukraine, you have inflation because of COVID, you have COVID waves coming and coming and coming, which slows down assembly lines and production. And overall, economically, we're going to be in a squeeze for some time before things get better, which is why it's more important than ever to know what's happening with your money and to take care of that debt. Take care of your money, invest wisely, and just be a little bit more frugal. And that's what this book talks about. What better time than now to know how to manage your money, how to have a better relationship with your money, and how to kind of create as much cushion for yourself as possible given the less than ideal circumstances. The psychology of money is something people don't talk nearly as much about. And that's why this book is really important because when you hear about money, you're usually thinking about these rich investors or, you know, these CEOs, the Warren Buffetts of the world. But we all need to know how to deal with our money because we are living in a society where money is the common language. Regardless what language we speak, where we're from, how we grew up, the commonality is that we all value the concept that money buys you things. But money, beyond buying you things, also buys you freedom. So in this episode, I will highlight 15 principles and lessons that I've learned from this book. You're going to want to take notes for this one. You should all still read it, but these are kind of like the highlights. And I'm going to try to keep it as brief as possible. But it's a lot. This is a big conversation, which is why I love having the financial literacy episodes 
on the podcast and I invite people who work in the financial world. But for me, it's very important because everything that I've built in my life, I've been pretty much financially plugged in. I read several books on investing and finance and saving, and I come from a long background of savers. At least my grandparents were savers, and it has a lot to do with when they were born and what happened in their lifetimes. My grandpa was born in 1937, so he grew up during wartime eras where money was not exactly easy, and his whole mentality of money kind of seeped into how I see money, which is save, 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 work, 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 save, 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 and buy everything in cash. Now, a lot of people would argue that if you're buying a house in cash, which is what I did, you're missing out on the benefits of investing in the market. But my grandpa, who I still talk to till this day about money, he basically says the freedom that you get from buying in cash outweighs the potential benefit of having invested in the market because the market goes up and down and his lifetime has shown him that the market was not as stable as he would have liked so he bought several houses in cash and would rent them out creating passive income for himself and while i'm getting savvier about investing and am investing in the market i still have that conservative approach because let's face it, your money language and your relationship with money starts before you're even born. It starts in the family that you were born in or the country that you were born in. It starts with these things that you cannot control. What we can control is our intelligence and our knowledge and our research on these topics and also getting down to the soft skills that money requires, which this book stresses a lot. Like money is not about being super intelligent it's more about behavioral changes that you can control self-discipline patience all of these things that are nearly not as valued in our society as like a get rich quick scheme so i think my grandpa would be proud of what i'm doing financially but he would also dig this book because this book is not like any other investment books i've read in fact it's pretty much cautioning everybody to be more frugal and to be more conservative but in the end, that'll buy you the freedom to feel independent and have more choice, which the author Morgan Housel argues is the ultimate thing money can buy you. I agree. So I want to get into this word that my grandparents taught me uh, when I was young, juizu. It's a Portuguese word that can be translated to judgment, but they would say it every single time I left the house. They would say it on the phone before hanging up. They would say it as like a gesture of remember to have good judgment and I didn't really understand what they meant until later in my life when I realized they were just trying to remind me like have common sense make sound decisions and I want to talk about juizu as one of the lessons that I got not only from my grandparents but from this book I think this book the whole theme is to have good judgment is to tune out the clutter of everyone else's money games and define your own so with everything that I'm saying, remember the word juizu. This is a language lesson and a money lesson. And know that every single thing that people talk about money has to be translated into a way that makes sense for you. Because you're an individual with different desires, with different paths, with different people you're supporting. So just because someone is investing in cryptocurrency and saying you should too does not mean you should take their advice because their circumstances are probably very different than yours. What makes them happy is probably totally different than what makes you happy. So this is a journey in both self-awareness, 
common sense, and long-term thinking. That's lesson one. Have juizu. That's a bonus. That wasn't in the book, but it's one that I pulled from the book overall. Something else that the author wanted to highlight in the very beginning of the book is how new our financial system is. And it's crazy that it's only around 20 to 50 years old. He gives the examples of the baselines of retirement, right? Everyone has heard of the word 401k or the number, which is actually just the number of the tax code. 401k is the modern backbone of retiring. That was only launched in 1978. That's insane because now everyone talks about the 401k and how you should be investing in retirement, but it's a relatively new concept. Same thing goes for Roth IRAs, which were only launched in the 90s. And y'all know we can't forget the elephant in the room, which is student loan debt, which in the US is ridiculous. Around the 1940s, one in 20 people over the age of 25 had their bachelor's degree. Now one in four people over 25 have their bachelor's degree. And in this time from the 1940s to now, college tuition has quadrupled. 45 million borrowers amount to $1.7 trillion of student loan debt. $1.7 trillion. That's a lot of money, y'all. And it's a burden because now if you're starting out as a 25-year-old with a college degree, you have to weigh this crippling factor that has never been a factor before in history like it is now. So it's like all of these variables essentially tell us that it's okay if we don't really know the exact answer to the financial game because it's all pretty new. And the author in the first chapter says, we're winging it. We are winging this. This is all an experiment. We don't know what we're doing. So the best thing that we can do is try to be as cautious as possible so we could buy ourselves that cushion. No one is crazy is also something that the author always repeats because the fact that this financial system is so new means that we're all just kind of doing the best we can. And some people's irrational decisions may make perfect sense to them. And that's not something we should judge. So basically, it's like a mind your business, mind your money. And that's a huge takeaway. Lesson number three is about how luck and risk are opposites of each other and play bigger factors in money success than we ever talk about. Bill Gates, we've heard about this story. Bill Gates is a really intelligent, successful businessman, but the fact that he was born in a town where his high school had an organization that raised money for a computer that he would then have access to was a one in a million chance. So Bill Gates, while yes, is very smart, is a genius, is also very lucky. In the same way that he was lucky, his best friend Ken Evans, who also took a liking to the computer and was also very smart, he was unlucky because he passed away on a mountaineering accident, which was also a one in a million chance. So really, the argument is that when you see someone who's successful, don't assume it's because they're super smart or that they made all the right decisions. We need to allocate the risk versus the luck of it all into these examples because odds are if we try to replicate their success it's not going to happen that way because luck played a huge part in their success you really cannot compare yourself to these people who won the lottery so the not your average joe takeaway here is to not assume that 100 percent of success is based on intellect effort and great decisions factor in this invisibility of luck and also risk this fourth lesson is so good, I'ma need to say it with conviction. Knowing you're enough. I love this lesson so much and I think that most of my life I've been 
trying to understand what my enough is. This chapter is opened up with uh, this really great story about a billionaire who was throwing a party in Shelter Island. One of the guys at the party pulled his buddy aside, who was an author of the book Catch-22, and said, did you know that the host of the party made what you made in your entire book's lifetime in a day? And the author said, yes, but I have something that that man will never have. I have enough. And that stuck with me because when you know what your enough is, you're not chasing this elusive idea of more. The word more is very toxic. It's essentially the root of envy. It's that you can have everything that you need to be healthy, to thrive, to you know take care of your loved ones, but you will never know what your enough is. So you're gonna go green with greed and you could fall into the trap of risking everything that you have for this more that you don't need and end up losing everything altogether. So it's like the people who tread their life with success financially and a healthy relationship with money are those that have defined their enough. And there's of course a financial level of enough. You need to have enough to pay your bills and to afford food and clothes and the basic things. And then beyond that, you need to be able to afford the things that make you happy, whether that's trips with your family or whatever, like educational, lessons, things like that. But beyond that, do you really need the most expensive car? Do you really need the most expensive house? And the issue that kind of snowballs into a bigger issue is that when you want to prove to others that you have this elusive more, you end up becoming a prisoner of your own success. And there are several stories in the book that talked about these millionaires and billionaires who made a lot of money, but got themselves caught up in these expensive mortgages with these gadgets that they eventually couldn't afford and they lost everything. What a way to go out. Like how stupid is that? You work so hard to make money, so you should enjoy the money which buys you the time and the choice as opposed to buying the things that you then later can't afford because then you're gonna become a slave of your own success. And therefore the money that you earned doesn't actually enrich your life, it makes it lesser. So it's a really wild concept that we as human beings need to define our own enough. No one is going to define it for us, but it should not be swayed by these external factors of looking rich and having nice cars and nice houses. Because in the end, if those nice things end up making your life shitty, then it's not worth it at all. Plus, like, who are you buying those nice things for? Is it for you or to try to gain the respect of others? Because if it's for the others, then you're always going to be chasing this and you'll never have enough. Going back to my grandparents, they taught me a lot about life. But one thing that they told me as a child that I still think about today is don't have olho gordo or a fat eye. But what they were essentially talking about is like, don't be greedy. Don't put more food on the plate than you can chew. And yes, this applies to the lunch concept because they didn't want to waste food but it also applies to money it's like why are you trying to chase more money than you actually need and that's something that i think about because we're living in a world with endless temptations we could spend money on anything that doesn't mean that we should though hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lesson number five. One of the hardest financial skills is to stop moving the goalpost. So on the subject of having enough, it's basically coming to terms with your genuine happiness and that that does not equal fancier things. We as humans have very cheap needs when it comes to like the baseline of joy. Like think about your happiest moments. It's probably time with your friends. It's probably, I don't know, time with your dog. And those are essentially free moments. So what we want 99% of the time is not nicer material possessions. It's just more time spent with the people that we care about or, you know, pouring ourselves into the things that make us feel alive. For me, that's learning languages. That's spending time with my family that's traveling and meeting people so for me my most expensive habits are travel but i've turned that into a way to make money so even the things that cost money in my life i found a way to recycle them and make them pay for themselves so my baseline of my cost of living is very small considering what it could be like the the trick here is to live below your means just because you make more money doesn't mean you should up your expenses and that's an art it's essentially knowing that you're making more and you're living consciously below your means which will then afford you a lot more freedom to do whatever you want with your money and the more money you have saved the more freedom you have bought yourself this one you've probably already heard of but i want to reframe this concept of compounding the key to compounding is time it's patience and it's staying in the game for much longer than the anxious investor that's going to pull their money out of the market when shit hits the fan the way that i look at every other habit in my life it's compounding it's the reason i journal it's because you can sit for 15 minutes a day and journal one or two pages but at the end of three months you've filled up 200 pages it's how i see learning languages if every day I spend 30 minutes practicing a language by the end of six months I'll be able to communicate with a local it's the same way I look at fitness if I work out every day by the end of six months I will have a fitter stronger body eating well is the same so compounding it's not only a lesson in finances but it's a lesson in life in general it's staying to your path and not being so swayed based on hypes or fads or get rich quick schemes this is a very humble way of treading through life compounding is just a lesson in consistency 30 minutes a day will compound to a whole new layer of your life in a language if you train for 30 minutes a day reading 10 pages a day will result in a much more informed version of yourself because you'll have finished several books compounding is key not only in money but in life and that's an important one Lesson number seven, getting money and keeping it are two different skills because getting money requires putting yourself out there, taking risks, having big ideas, believing in this impossibility of more while saving money requires being a little paranoid, being a little scarcity, you know, mindset oriented, being a little frugal and being conservative. So you can be really good at making money, but really bad at saving it. 
because those two skills are opposites of one another. So where can we find a middle ground here where you can take risks like somebody who makes money really well, but keep conservative principles to save your money so that you can stay in the game longer? What a concept. And it's true. I know a lot of people who are so damn good at making money, but so bad at saving it. And I just think like, shit, it's not really the money that you make. It's how much money you save, which is another lesson that I'll get to. Which brings me to lesson number eight, which I've already touched on, but it's the importance of having a room for error. That these volatilities in our market, like what we're living now, this impending potential recession, it is very concerning because it's going to mean a lot more unemployment. It's going to mean a lot more inflation. It's going to mean a lot of bad things. So it's like, how do we live in this gray area in the middle of really scary and really optimistic it's like we need to live in this middle ground and that means buying yourself room for error that means saving more money expecting the worst but having optimism that it'll be okay eventually and that's where it gets very psychological the other thing is that we couldn't have predicted these really life-changing events that have changed the economy forever we couldn't have predicted 9-11 or the pandemic or the war in ukraine we couldn't have predicted these insane oil prices we couldn't have predicted these things people who have made decisions thinking that the market was always going to be on the up are probably squeezing their butt cheeks right now because things are really not great not that we should lose all hope in the economic system but we should be walking through it with this essentially realistic approach that means investing in maybe not the highest yield stocks but something that's consistent something that's safe diversifying the investments then there was a quote that i really loved which was by benjamin graham who created the concept of margin of safety which is another way of saying room for error but he says that the purpose of the margin of safety is to render the forecast unnecessary you want to protect yourself and be unbreakable financially so that even if the market is garbage, you're still doing okay. And if the market is doing amazing, you're still doing okay. You live in this forever okay, but good financial area. I think about when I bought my car a few years ago and I could have bought a really nice car and I looked at the difference between leasing and buying a car outright or buying a new car versus a used car and I settled on buying a used car car that used to be a rental car because that meant that it was in great condition the mileage was high but i already knew myself i knew that i wouldn't be driving the car as much so over the years that i would own it it wouldn't really matter if the mileage was high when i bought it because it would be pretty even in a few years time which happened and then additionally i realized that if i leased a car Sure, I could get a new car every two years, but I don't need a new car every two years. And what I definitely didn't want was to have a monthly payment because the burden of having a monthly payment to me feels crushing. So I could have a nice car, but I wouldn't feel free because my money would be bleeding out of my account every month. Same thing goes with my house. My house was a very modest house. It has everything that I need. I don't plan on buying a nicer, crazier car or a nicer, crazier house because modestly, like I don't need anything nicer than what I have. But what it did was it afforded me financial freedom, right? Because I have what I need and then I have more financial freedom to decide things like I'm going to grad school in London to study film. Why? Because I don't have a huge mortgage and I don't have a crazy car payment. And that is not something I could have predicted when I made my decision to buy a modest car or to buy a modest house. I couldn't have predicted that. But now I'm seeing the benefits of having paid it forward for my future self back in the day. Like in, in essence, being low maintenance has bought me this current freedom and joy that I get to appreciate now. And I'm like, you go, little Joe. 
you did it. You did it for us. And that just makes me want to keep doing that for my future self. Which brings us to the ninth lesson that money, as you've heard in this episode so far, really just buys you freedom. It buys you the power to choose how to spend your time. There are surveys on people who have high yielding salary jobs that are very unhappy because they don't have control over their time versus people who make less money but have more freedom and are ultimately happier as a result. And if we're being realistic here, and if you don't believe in reincarnation or that there's an afterlife, you're very aware that the finite life we have is all we have to work with. Why are we chasing these imaginary joys if they don't actually make us happy? Lesson number 10. There's a difference between being rich and being wealthy. Rich, the author argues, is what you see. Fancy cars, nice houses, big pools. But wealth is what you don't see. It's the choice to not spend your income so that you buy yourself the ability to have future choice down the line. And the power is in not exercising the power. It's a little ironic. But the issue here, as far as like financial wellness goes, it's hard to have a wealth inspiration because you don't see someone's wealth. There was the story of Ronald Reed in the book. He was a janitor, a gas station attendant, a philanthropist. And when he died, he died with $8 million. You would have never known that this man who was very modest, who drove a basic car, did the same thing every day, was a multimillionaire. Somebody even said he would purposely avoid parking in spots where he had to spend quarters. So Ronald Reed in his lifetime was just known as somebody who was, you know, blue collar and very average working class. And then when he passed away, people were like, damn, this man was a millionaire. And that is the issue as far as like having wealth role models, because you don't see when someone is wealthy and it's hard to replicate their behaviors because you're not inspired by somebody who's doing the same thing every day, or maybe you should be. So understanding the difference between rich and wealth is really key here. You can look at someone who looks very basic, who has very basic clothing and very basic assets, and they're sitting on a stockpile of money. And that money that they're sitting on buys them the freedom to choose exactly how to spend their money. The irony here is like the Ronald Reeds of the world. My grandpa is similar. He does the same thing every day. They don't even really want to use that money. They're building it for their families. My grandpa always says like, yeah, I'm, I do this for you guys. And I'm like, damn, grandpa, because I'm doing this for the people who come after me. And maybe that's the point. It's like we as humans just want to work so hard to provide for our next of kin and our bloodline because primitively we're wired to support our family whether you're connected to them or not like you're working to leave something behind when you're far gone and in many ways people see the first step as a financial inheritance but that's wealth and wealth is often concealed lesson number 11 we should accept the reality of our changing minds. There's a great theory, psychological theory, called the end of history illusion, which is when humans, psychologically, we tend to be very aware of how much we've changed in the past, but we are very bad when it comes to predicting how much will change in the future. And the reason why that's important to plan your financial decisions is that we need to take into consideration that yes, we can plan, but we need to be flexible that our plan could change. Today, your goals could very well change and being nimble in your strategies, as in not taking out huge amounts of loans, because today you might be free and not have a family. But in a few years, who knows, you could have a family, you could have kids to feed or you could have some crazy expense come up like God forbid an accident happens. We will have to revise the plan. And this is where the room for error is really important. It's like 
be more cautious than you think you need to be because when you change your mind or when things change in your life that flexibility will buy you peace and that's key like right now maybe you have a career that's yielding a lot of money but in a few years who knows you could get so sick and tired of that job that you decide you want to make pottery for a living and you're gonna have to scale back your expenses but if you overcommit in these expensive things then you're gonna be indebted to those expensive things and not be able to free yourself from whatever bad situation you find yourself in lesson number 12 nothing is free for success to chase these careers with high titles there's of course a salary amount that comes into play but there's also this invisible price this cost emotional toll and when you see somebody who's successful what you don't see is what it took for them emotionally what they had to pay emotionally to get to that success i think about this a lot when I was young I always wanted to be like this international boss having a bunch of employees but now I'm like I don't want to have a huge company because when you have a huge company you actually have to work for them and you claim to be an entrepreneur to have freedom but you become indebted to your employees because if you don't get up and work they don't get their bills paid and I after thinking carefully about that I'm like I don't know if I ever want that you know what I ultimately want is freedom and if you have a bunch of people that you have to support and make sure their bills are paid you're not free because you're technically working for them even though they're working for you and that was me analyzing the invisible cost of that success that I was chasing I was on a path to achieve that success and when I realized I wasn't willing to pay that emotional cost I changed my whole course of action so in any decision that you make think about the invisible cost that nothing is free a great journal prompt here is what price are you willing to pay what's worth it to you even having a traveling lifestyle you might want to have a traveling lifestyle and that's amazing and you should go out and see the world but when you do it for so long that you realize that you don't have any stable relationships maybe it's not worth the price and that's why I've slowed down a little bit because it wasn't worth the price to me what good is it to travel the world if you have no roots anywhere, if you have no relationships that you can rely on when shit gets tough? It's not worth it to me personally. I'd rather see less places but have more meaningful relationships because that's just my value system. Lesson number 13. There is wisdom in being a long-term investor and avoiding being a short-term investor. Short-term investors are people who follow hypes. They're people who try to beat the market, who time their investments. It's impossible to do so, and trying to do so is basically gambling. The people that you hear about, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world, they are very successful because they've stayed in the market. Warren Buffett started investing when he was 11 years old, and what people rarely talk about is that 99.7% of his wealth came after his 52nd birthday. Birthday. He went from being a millionaire to a billionaire in a few years because he stayed in those holdings. When you're a short-term investor, you're following hypes and you're not exactly committing. The compounding gift comes when you commit. And I know we're all kind of afraid of commitment, y'all, like myself included. But when it comes to your money, it pays off to, to stay the course. So try to avoid these hypes of the NFT crazes and the Bitcoins because, yes, it could work out beautifully. Risk and reward are opposites. However, it could also blow up in your face if you're following these trends and you end up realizing like, damn, I was following so-and-so's advice, but we are not playing the same game, which brings us to lesson number 14. We're not all playing the same game. We could follow these trends and these patterns of people that are playing different games with different variables. Every human being has a different set of variables. And the number one thing you should do is identify what game you're playing. What are the rules of that game? Are you supporting people in your family? Do you have cushion? What are your ultimate goals? What does success look like to you? And then once you've mapped out what game you're playing, 
you have a fighting chance of winning. But if you're just following hypes and trends and taking aimless advice without thinking about how it translates to what game you're playing, it could also create some problems for you. You could be following those friends who go to the mall every weekend and spend a bunch of money because they don't need to worry about supporting their family when you're just shooting yourself in the foot because you know what success looks like to you is very different than what it looks like to them. And that's okay, you could still have people who are playing different games in your circle, but being aware that you're playing different games is really important so that you're not getting peer pressured into making bad decisions because the things that people are doing would actually hurt you in the long run. Another journal entry here, identify what game you're playing and then you can actually zone in on what matters to you and not what matters to everyone else who's playing a different game. And finally, lesson number 15, no one is crazy. The author keeps talking about how no one's crazy, that we're all just winging it, we're all trying to figure it out. This modern financial system is super young and very new and while a lot of people claim to be experts the truth is we're all figuring this out we don't have enough data to know exactly what perfect moves to take and we're also dealing with very primitive hardware when you think about the human species and how we evolved we're wired with a negativity bias because genetically speaking we will survive and reproduce more likely if we react to threats versus if we praise something good that happened if there's a tiger in the bushes and it makes a sound, we're gonna run, we're gonna think the worst. If somebody says markets are down, we're gonna think the worst because we're wired to think the worst. But if we react with those primitive brains, we could be hurting ourselves in the long run because we're not thinking about the overall big picture. We're dealing with very ancient hardware in modern times. So going back to I think what every episode boils down to, it's like the self-awareness and awareness of your overall vision for what a good, successful, healthy life looks like and the people that you love and care for. How do you, you know, better their lives? I think that's what makes a not average Joe not average. It's being hyper in tune with oneself. Like whether we're talking about money or language learning or all of these things, it's like we have to be experts of tuning out the clutter because only then can we hear what's actually going on. And when we hear what's actually going on within us, we can navigate this crazy thing we call life. Thank you so much for listening to my very long money rant. I hope that you pick up the book. I'll link it in the show notes and in the description box of this episode. It's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other financial resources that I can share with you guys. If you like this format of podcast episode, please follow me on the Not Average Joe Pod Instagram and on my Instagram, Joe underscore Franco, and shoot me a DM. I read everything. I want to know if you guys like this format. I'll do more of them. I was thinking we could switch it up, have every other week be a Joe-led episode and a guest-led episode so that we spice things up and it buys me more time to schedule these interviews. This episode was produced and edited by me, yours truly. Honestly, I need a podcast editor, so if you guys have anyone, please send me an email, joe at joannafranco.com. The theme song was created by my lovely sister, Fernanda Franco. Don't forget to join the Discord group. There are only a few people in it, which is nice. It's cozy in there, but I'll link the Discord chat room in the description box below. It's basically our, our living room for global not average Joes. And I will be looking in that chat room to see like what you guys think since there's no comment section on podcasts. Because ultimately, I'm doing this podcast for all of us, right? Like every episode, I actually learn something new, but I hope you do too. And if you're not learning anything new, I gotta do a better job, yo. But if I am, let me know so I can keep doing it and do it better. 
Thank you so much. Have an above average week because you deserve it and take care of yourselves and your money. I'll see you soon. Hey, yo, come listen to my girl, man. What you doing? Shit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.